Congregation at Prayer, stanzas one and two. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord, as you are faithful to the patriarchs in preserving them from harm and in blessing them according to your covenant, so teach us to rely upon your promises, to sing of your faithfulness, and to tell others of all your wondrous works of salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love these coincidences, which are gracious, divine providence at work. Psalm 105 is the psalm. It's not in your hymnal. It's uh, unfortunately. Uh, so, but Psalm 105, we had the first half last week, the second half this week. And in the first half, um, it was proclaimed that the Lord was faithful to the patriarchs in protecting them according to his promise. Uh, this week, the conclusion to Psalm 105, and it fits in so beautifully with where we are in our Old Testament readings. So just listen to this, Psalm 105, verses 23. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Ham was one of the three sons of uh, Noah. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Interesting, God turned the heart of the Egyptians to hate his people. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. And we'll begin hearing about those signs today. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. This is an example of putting the best construction on everything, even in the sacred scriptures. Psalm 105, the second half, makes it seem as if the children of Israel were nothing but faithful, God-fearing believers in whom there was never the slightest bit of doubt whatsoever. What a declaration of God's grace. They did not rebel against his word. 
He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land. I'm sure it had to do with global climate change, but at any rate. They devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold. Those are the spoils of battle. And there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed. Get out! For the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The glory cloud. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like, like a river. For he remembered his holy promise. And Abraham his servant, he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord, or literally, hallelujah. Uh, so that's the psalm for the week, the second half of Psalm 105. The more you know about the history of the children of Israel and their sojourn in Egypt, the more meaningful that passage is. And what it is underscoring is what the Lord did. Remember last week when we finished Bible class, it was that section in Exodus, I am the Lord, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this for you. And it was not done on the basis of their merit or worthiness, but solely on the basis of his grace. So there's some commentary in the catechesis notes for the week, and then the prayer is on that. Today is, or this week, the Sacrament of Holy Baptism Part 3, we had part 1 and 2 last week, the essence of baptism. It is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptizing them. And the benefits, the second part, it works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation. Now those are some pretty great things to work forgiveness, to rescue from death and the devil, to give eternal salvation. Those are awesomely great things. Now this week, how can water do such great things? Let's speak it together. Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water, and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism, that is, a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit. As St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I take you to the Titus passage in bold on the congregation at prayer first. In the past, you may remember or you may have forgotten, so I'll tell you now, that what St. Paul is doing in part here is expounding upon the divine name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, go baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of holy baptism. The first he, he saved us, is a reference to God the Father. So God the Father saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Two concepts flow together in the Holy Scriptures relative to baptism, calling it a washing, but also a rebirth. A washing and a rebirth, as well as sanctifying renewal. By the Holy Spirit, there is the third person of the Trinity, whom he, God the Father, so God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on us generously, there's the language of grace and not by merit, through Jesus Christ our Savior, there's the Son. You see? So God the Father, through the Son, poured out his Holy Spirit on us generously. And for what purpose? So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So justification, being declared righteous, and joined to Christ, whereby we become heirs of heaven, are here located in the sacrament of baptism. Notice how this corresponds not only to the divine name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but think about the baptism of our Lord last Sunday. He saved us. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's pleased with you, and he saves you for Jesus' sake. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove upon Jesus. In his death, he gives up the Spirit and on Easter night, he says, peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So God the Father pours out his Holy Spirit on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we're seeing the operation, if you will, of the three persons of the Trinity uh, in this Titus passage. You know, all we hear is, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But what's actually going on? God the Father is saving us through this washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father is pouring out on us generously, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Savior. For what purpose? So that having been justified, declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So this is where the apostles are constantly doing this in their epistles. They are opening up and giving us catechesis on the meaning of the words and works of Jesus in the Gospels. Very significant. The first part now, the explanation, how can water do such great things? Again, we need to know the context of the question. The great things are what were referred to last week under the benefits, forgiveness of sin, rescue from death and the devil, and eternal salvation. And it is a great... Uh, 
display a biblical theology. Certainly not just water. But the word of God in and with the water does these things. Can't have baptism without the water, but what gives water its power is the word. What role does faith play? Along with faith, what role does it play? Here the catechism answers the question, which trusts the word in the water. See? So certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, forgives sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation. Along with the faith, what role does faith play? Which trusts this word of God in the water. But without God's word, the water is plain water, no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. So it's a great display. You see this in the office of the keys, that confession and absolution has its power to forgive by virtue of Christ's word. And you see it in the Lord's Supper. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating, but the word of, of God given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's why if we ever run out of elements, I must speak the word of Christ again over additional elements that are brought forward. Never do you just grab some out of the cabinet and hand it out. Always the word of Christ is spoken. Always. Okay? All right, so there's the catechism for the week, and that ties in finally to our Bible verse for the week. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And last Sunday in the sermon, this uh, later portion was quoted, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the, an earlier verse, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's say it together. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Anytime in the New Testament you come to this prepositional phrase, in Christ, en Christo, it is always talking about the reality of what you have been given in baptism. You are placed in Christ in baptism. How do we know this? As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. All of these passages speak of being placed in Christ, and that's the reality of baptism. So if anyone is in Christ, you could say if anyone is baptized, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Now those realities are received by faith, as the Titus passage indicates, but, but it's an equivalency here. Just like when we said last week, baptism saves. Why? Because baptism is Christ the gift of his death and resurrection to you for your righteousness. Okay? So here, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is baptized, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Now, old has to do with everything that sin brought into the world. The corruption, the doubt, the rebellion, the fear, 
the dread, the condemnation of hell, and so forth. What we experience in the world today with all of its fallenness, what we experience in the struggle with our, in our own flesh, the good that I would, I do not do, that which I would not is the very thing that I do. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Now what Paul is in part calling us to believe here is that in spite of the struggle with the old things, particularly the flesh, we are a new creation. This is the reality. And this is something we as Lutherans have as a part of our heritage but have failed to emphasize over the last century or so. And that is the power of the declarative reality of what you is in Christ. You is a new creation. You are not wicked and foul as much as we do confess that daily. The ultimate word for faith is you are a new creation. You are righteous. There's where the power comes from. St. Paul expresses this in Romans when he says that the good I would, I don't do, that which I would not is the very thing that I do, O wretched man that I am. But that's not where it stops. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And what is the answer? No one? Or I guess I'll have to try harder. I'll make, you know, what's the uh, book you were talking about the other night on Friday? Um, not Promise Keepers, but uh, Rick Warren. Uh, Purpose Driven Life, yes. If you just have the rules and the regulations and you commit yourself to this, then you'll overcome. Which, who needs Jesus then? Okay. No, the power is in the declarative reality of what you is in Christ, a new creation. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. Dikayu sine tu theu en auto. Susan. Yeah, that's the hymn for the week. Creation by his death restored. Okay? So, uh, this is, he wants us to believe we are a new creation in Christ in spite of the struggle with sin, in spite of the doubt, in spite of the fear, in spite of the stumbling. We are in Christ. And there is power in that. Not only is there power in that, there is freedom. Freedom for the conscience. Because if you start relying for, uh, for living the sanctified and holy life upon your own strength, you will either be a supreme Pharisee or forever filled with foreboding guilt because you're never done enough. Okay? Uh, behold, all things have become new. Now, this, this speaks about how the redeeming work of Christ has saved the entirety of creation. Not just you and me. And the pattern of the new creation is already typified in the Old Testament. You have the literal creation of the heavens and the earth in six days. And then you have the new creation prefigured in the flood. Where the world is radically transformed by the flood. You see... That flood corresponds to baptism. 
which radically transforms and places us in Christ, making us a new creation. And it becomes a foretaste of the resurrection to come. So not only are we resurrected body and soul, freed from sin, as the culmination, fruition of our baptism, but the whole of God's good creation will be set free from the curse of the fall and will enjoy the liberty, the freedom of the children of God. That's Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans as in labor pains. Okay? So when C.S. Lewis talks about animals and talking beasts and so forth like that, there may be more truth in it than we realize. Okay, one last time. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. All right. Any, uh, any comments or questions? Pastor Galvin? Just that become new, if you look at the verses following, it speaks of reconciliation, yep. righteousness. That's how this becomes new. Yeah, prior to this, you know, the love of Christ constrains us, compels us, moves us along as ministers of the gospel, but also as Christians in our lives. He says, the love of Christ compels us. For we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all have died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Mr. Hahn. Yes. But the but the but the absolution that frees the conscience and gives peace is a foretaste of the resurrection, and the foretaste of the glorious freedom and liberty from sin and its corruption. Yeah, which is not only for us but for all of creation. Okay, Exodus. Chapter 6. The Lord sends plagues upon Egypt and hardens Pharaoh's heart. Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Now, I don't know whether or not... Um, uh, Where's Kathy? There's Kathy. Um, Kathy asked me a question before Bible class after church about having questions. Do you want to rephrase? I, I was reading um, the Exodus, the, the passage that you read in, uh, for the Old Testament reading, but I read before that. Yeah, today's Old Testament reading for the second Sunday after Epiphany where the Lord only permits Moses to see his backside. Right. And it had described a tent where... Uh, the, the, the tent of meeting, which is the ta meeting. tabernacle. Yeah. Yep. And that... Um, I'm not going to be able to quote the, the words exactly, but it basically, in my mind, said that it described face-to-face -face meeting, man-to-man meetings with God. And then the next... Was talking about he had to be protected so that 
Yeah, so this, the, the idea of the glory of God destroying the sinner, yep. whether it's the prophet Moses or the children of Israel, yep. is an important concept in the Old Testament mm -hmm. because of the problem and corruption of sin. Mm -hmm. And also for this reason, that the veil is lifted and the capacity to finally be touched by God and not die is fulfilled only in Jesus, who the Son of God who tabernacles among us in his flesh. So in the tent, was that Jesus? Well, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, uh, was the place of Yahweh. And you could only stridently enforced in the Old Testament. Stridently, you know, vigorously enforced was the notion that you could not approach God in any other way except through God's means, the way he provided. You approach in any other way, you die. Now, this corresponds to what Jesus said. Yeah, he wants you to live. But there's only one way to approach God as sinners, and that's through the way that he provides, the truth that he provides, the life that he provides. Does that sound familiar? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you touch the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament when you weren't supposed to, you drop dead. You entered into the tabernacle, you engaged like uh, Nadab and Abihu with profane fire. You know, they were pious people, but they wanted to engage in contemporary worship, and they died. Well, I, I make a bit of a joke, but there's a lot more truth in it than you realize. You could not, in the Old Testament, you could not approach God in any other way but God's way. No matter how noble you might have been in your motivations, no matter what other faith you might have had, there's only one way. This exclusivity then finds its fruition in Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So any other approach to God except through Christ is profane and results in judgment and death. Okay? So, but now in the New Testament, you have all of these things, like the second Sunday in, in Advent, in Epiphany, the changing of water into wine, which does correspond with our Old Testament readings, the, the water into blood. Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Wonder of wonders, now we approach God through Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has manifested him. Okay? So finally and ultimately, seeing of Yahweh in the brilliance of the glory of his self-giving and saving love is in the face of Jesus, God's only son in the flesh. It is in the baby of Bethlehem. It is in the bridegroom out of whose side, as Pastor Gelbach said this morning, flowed blood and water for the creation of his bride, the church, and the cleansing of his bride. The Old Testament word Moses, where the passing by, it's the same word for passing away, but it's as approaching and just coming there. But the Old Testament is always looking at the backside of Christ. 
where he can go. And we see him face to face where he's come from. In the New Testament, that change would uh, The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is all in John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time, John chapter 1. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And this is part of the way, why, why, did, Moses, why did the Lord go that way with Moses? Not as, he was the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. That we might learn that as great as Moses was in his ministry and so forth, there is no one greater than Christ, through whom alone we see God face to face. Polly? No, no, my hand doesn't go. Oh, okay. Better be careful if we have an auction, you know. <laughs> All right. So Exodus chapter 6, I hope that helps someone. Exodus chapter 6, uh, we had gone through that wonderful verse uh, 2 through 9 last week, you know, I am the Lord, I have established my covenant. I have heard, I have remembered, I will redeem, I will take you as my people, I will be your God, I am the Lord, I will bring you into the land I swore. So who's going to do it? The Lord will. Now verse 28. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. Now, notice how that corresponds so well with the themes that we highlighted in baptism for today, the importance of the salvific delivering word of God. Be sure you tell him everything that I say to you. And, and behind all this in Moses' ministry, you know, don't worry about the outcome in fact, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart and things are going to get worse before they get better. Just be faithful. Speak the word that I call you to speak. Be careful to say everything. And nothing else mattered uh, more. So, but Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How shall Pharaoh heed me? Now, not only is Moses confessing his ineptitude, but he's also confessing something else. Do you remember what we talked about? Circumcision was a sign of what in the promise? Faith in the promise, trust in the promise. So when he says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, it's his way of confessing that he is full of doubts himself. How then will the Lord heed me? And I mentioned last week about Dr. Preuss telling us, you just preach the truth. I don't care what turmoil you're going through in your life, you just preach the truth. And, and the Lord is telling the same kind of thing here to Moses. Uh, chapter 7, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So authoritative to Pharaoh. Now, he's not going to recognize that authority, not at first, but then he'll have to deal with the consequences. And Aaron, as your prophet, a prophet is the one who speaks on behalf of the God. Okay? So 
he gives, the Lord gives his word to Moses. Moses gives his word to Aaron. Aaron speaks. You shall speak all that I command you. There's that theme again. And Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh that he must send the children of Israel out of the land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do this. And why? Pharaoh was an unbeliever. He rejected the Lord. So by hardening Pharaoh's heart in stubbornness and pride, we see the full extent of that unbelief that judgment might fall upon him and Egypt and the Lord's name might be vindicated. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. So notice, he indicates the purpose for which he will harden Pharaoh's heart. What's the purpose? A couple of purposes here, according to verse 4. John? So that he could show, demonstrate by these signs. So that he could demonstrate by these signs that he is the Lord, okay? So that through such hardening of heart, he actually saves them. Now let me repeat that again. Through such hardening of heart, which brings affliction on his people, he actually saves them. Okay? Why does God permit a pandemic, a pestilence, a disease, a famine, that through the affliction, God might save you? We need to teach these things instead of ignoring these things. God saves through affliction. God saves through suffering. God saves through death. That's at the heart of the Christian gospel. That through the suffering, through the death of his son, God saved and accomplished his greatest good. So if he did that through the cross of Christ, how much more in our own lives and in the life of the church will he not accomplish his great good? And of course, among many things that he accomplished in Israel was to strip them of this self-righteousness and pride, their arrogance, and to bring them to true repentance, which is, I've been emphasizing, is a turning away from any notion of self-reliance to reliance upon Christ. Verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. It is the Lord that accomplishes this. Just like on the last day when Jesus comes again in glory, he will accomplish this. As every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and on under the earth, even those who hated his guts and rejected him and persecuted the church. And everyone will be made to confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. What a retirement. 
Then uh, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, a sign, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh. Remember, that was the first sign that the Lord gave to Moses at the burning bush on Mount Horeb. And let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Ha! My serpent's bigger than your serpent. My serpent's bigger than yours. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So question, is Satan capable of signs and wonders? Yeah, Jesus says as much, so if, as if possible to deceive even the elect. See, I have told you these things. Okay, now comes, notice we're going to uh, kind of like survey some things here, but the first plague is, begins in chapter 14, uh, water becomes blood. The second plague, chapter 8, froggies. And the third plague, beginning at verse 16 of 8, lice, and so forth. I'm going to put these up on the board here so you get a look at these. For the longest time, and I never had researched it, but I always scratched my head. Uh, this included in the early days of being a pastor. The significance of the plagues. Sometimes we talk about ten plagues, but they're really nine plagues plus the pièce de résistance, which is the death of the firstborn, uh, which speaks both of judgment against unbelief and the death of God's firstborn and only begotten son. Okay. But they're actually in three groups of three. And this is what I did not grasp until Dr. John Kleinig opened this up to us in a study of Exodus and Leviticus. Water into blood, frogs, lice, then flies, diseased livestock, and boils, and then hail, locusts, and darkness. Were the Egyptians monotheists or polytheists? They were polytheists. And what he pointed out in his uh, commentary on this is that the first three plagues represented God's judgment and power over the gods of the Egyptian gods of the underworld. You know, water coming up out of the ground, blood, frogs coming up out of the goop, uh, lice. Every time I hear the word lice, I start being itchy. I, I don't know if you have that 
post-hypnotic suggestion type of thing. And the lice, if you remember, they came up out of the, out of the dust. Okay? So the, the Egyptian gods of the underworld could do nothing to end these plagues. It was, they were going, running wild. I mean, I love the frogs one because they come into your house and they're in your kneading bowl and in your bed. It's just frogs everywhere. There's frogs and then lice <laughs> everywhere. Okay, then there's flies, lives, disease livestock, and boils. And, and this represents the gods of this world, you know, the earthly plane that we live on. So you got the Egyptian gods of the underworld, the gods of this world. So hail comes down from above, the, the lightning with the fire from, from the sky. Locusts, these big clouds of locusts, that whatever the, um, whatever the hail did not wipe out and the lightning then the, the locusts ate up the rest of the foliage. And then darkness, of course, some sort of bizarre eclipse that brought darkness on the land. So God demonstrates his victory over the gods of the overworld. So if you went into Egyptian polytheistic um, theology, you would see these pagan gods, a myriad of them, and uh, gods of different things like the, the medieval, you know, the patron saint of this, that, or the other thing. Well, there were gods of this, like in, even in the Greco-Roman where you've got Poseidon, who is the, uh, uh, the, the god of the sea, and the, you know. In Gothenburg, Sweden, they have this enormous naked a uh, statue of Poseidon in the square. It's quite the, uh, which, where the children during their lunch break frolic about. In, Pastor. In Exodus 12, it's specifically over the gods of Egypt. That tree tree too. And I, that's right. And I mean, they have a, a god that has a frog head. They have a god that has a cow head. Yeah. They, all, they have a rock, you know, sun god. Yep. Nile god. I mean, all these gods. Every, more gods than you could shake a stick at. Right. And so what's going on here in the plagues of Egypt is that now all of creation is going bonkers. But in this, Yahweh, the only true God, I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the God who alone is creator and who alone is savior, shall we use this term, trumps all the other gods of Egypt. That's for you, Amy. That's for you, Okay. So that's part of what's going on. Now let's take, let's take just this uh, first pattern because you'll see this. Verse 14 of chapter 7. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to, the, to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you. Let my people go, 
that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, so when Moses went into Pharaoh, what was he to do? The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve or worship me in the wilderness. That's what he was supposed to say. I'm giving you the word, now go in there and do this. So he didn't paraphrase. He went in with the Lord's word and did what the Lord commanded him to do. That's what we call faithfulness. It's a faithfulness not rooted in his spiritual strength, but in the Lord's word. Thus says the Lord, uh, excuse me, um, but indeed until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. It's everywhere. We can't get away from it. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. Again, the command and institution of the Lord. Talk about the sacraments being administered according to Christ's institution. Don't mess around with the text. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters and were in the river that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, what's in part significant here theologically is that in the book of Leviticus, it says specifically that life is in the blood. So when blood flows, you know, your blood doesn't flow on the outside of your body. If the blood flows on your outside of your body, and it's a lot of it, you die. You don't have long to, because life is being poured out of you. So when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, his life was being poured out for us in atonement for sin. So there was death in the land, and they could not deliver themselves from death. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now, how is it that the Egyptian magicians could do such things? Remember what we've talked about in terms of satanic signs. Satan can produce certain things, and one thing in particular, death. He cannot create life, but he can create death. And uh, Luther and the... Uh, uh, and the uh, church fathers, they talk about 
Satan being behind things like pestilence and earthquakes and famines, uh, breaking people's necks through accidents, quote unquote. Now, God will only allow Satan to go so far for his purposes, but uh, it is nonetheless the case that, that Satan can produce death. Alec. I don't know, except uh, perhaps water that had been reserved in other situations. I, I just don't know. Yep. Did the Israelites also face all these plagues as well as the Egyptians? Uh, they, they, they did at first, and then they didn't after that. Then there was a distinction. Okay. So early on, it was they were enduring the same things, which, in, which is instructive for us. It's like the COVID-19. Is it only unbelievers who are getting sick? No, believer and unbeliever alike. So they face both. Uh, but we get sick, but not without hope. You know? So there's a lot of afflictions that afflict. There's no distinction. There's no partiality. But as we move along in the plagues, then it happens where only the Egyptians are afflicted, but not the Israelites. Uh, let's see, what verse did I leave off on? Um, verse 23. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Now I'd like you to keep, we're at the end of our time, but we'll come back to the same, uh, as we survey a little bit more, the plagues next week, or ne yeah, next week, uh, leading up to the death of the firstborn. But a couple of thoughts, three thoughts for you to keep in mind. First, when the Lord's spokesman speaks, the Lord himself is speaking. When the Lord's spokesman speaks, the Lord himself is speaking. We see that in the case of Moses, but also we hear that in the liturgy, you know, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the Lord performs his works by his word. The Lord performs his works by his word. Notice how it corresponds well. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things. And finally, number three, and this is significant uh, in terms of the canon of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament. The miraculous signs focus our attention on the authority of the word of God and those whom he has called to proclaim it. So Moses was established by God to be Yahweh's prophet through miraculous signs and wonders performed by, before both the Egyptians and the Israelites. You follow? So the establishment of Moses as God's spokesman was done by God through these signs witnessed by both Egyptians and Israelites. 
After this, everyone must speak according, every prophet must speak according to Moses. If you don't speak according to Moses, you're a false prophet. In the New Testament, the apostles are established as God's spokesmen, representatives of Jesus, again, by miraculous signs. So one of the significance of the miracles in the apostolic era was to point to Peter and John. Listen to them. Okay, Kathy? In accordance with Moses, you can't, your doctrine, your preaching, your teaching, your prophetic utterance cannot contradict Moses. Okay? Uh, that's, that's the point. So it, the, the most important prophet of the Old Testament was Moses. Because God established Moses as the preeminent prophet who would speak forth his word through signs that God performed through Moses before both the Egyptians and the Israelites. Okay? Which is one of the reasons, again, just as I've said to you in the New Testament, one of the reasons why the dating of the Gospels, the liberals want to push way late, is because if they do that, then they can say, well, nobody was around to witness whether or not these things actually happened. But if the writing is earlier, you've got witnesses. So also in the case of Moses, Moses was established. When they go into the land of Canaan, remember Jericho, Rahab the harlot, says, we have heard all that the Lord, your God, did in the land of Egypt. Now, the Egyptians didn't broadcast that. You know, because they, that would have, you know, they wrote their own history, so they leave certain things out. But the people in the land of Canaan, they heard these things. And these things are well established in the ancient uh, world at the time. Okay, so we'll continue with this uh, story next week. Also, uh, certainly water, not just water, those baptismal stories this week culminating with the cleansing of Naaman the leper. Uh, the cleansing of Naaman the leper is a great narrative on Friday of this week for this third part of the catechism. The word of God in and with the water does these things. Okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.